You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning, South Bay Church. It's great to be together. Uh, What an inspiring time of worship uh, we're having today. Uh, Lindsay, thank you so much. That was really great. Um, Wow, so moving. Thank you. Um, We're continuing our series today called Our God and Country. Uh, We listened to a great lesson from Owen last week on uh, our Lord and King and and who is Jesus to us. And today's topic is uh, citizens of God's kingdom and what that really means to be uh, part of God's country. Uh, and so before we get too much further, let's say a prayer, and, uh, and then we'll continue. Yeah. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for leaving it for us so that we would know your heart and your mind. Uh, please, as we talk today, as the, during the lesson, please let your Holy Spirit uh, fill our minds and hearts with your thoughts and your will. Uh, thank you so much for the time we have to share this morning. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, at the risk of going from the sublime to the ridiculous, I'm going to share uh, one of my vices with you. And I know a lot of you struggle with this same addiction. It's called country music. And uh, I want to share some verses because, you know, country music is just, it's raw and it's real. And there's this, this little song I want to share with you from Joe Diffie. Um, the first, the, the first uh, verse goes, well, Ain't afraid of dying, it's the thought of being dead. I want to go on being me once my eulogy's been read. Don't spread my ashes out to sea. Don't lay me down to rest. You can put my mind at ease if you'll fill my last request. Prop me up beside the jukebox if I die. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. Fill my boots up with sand. Put a cold drink in my hand. Prop me up beside the jukebox if I die. You know, sometimes our problem is that we want to go to heaven. We want to be citizens of God's kingdom, but we just don't want to be it right now. Um, We forget that, uh, you know, God's called us already into his kingdom, and we think that heaven is sometime later and sometime in the future, and we'll get to that when we're ready to get to it. Um, But God says, no, we're actually citizens of his kingdom uh, right now. It's so easy to get consumed by the craziness of our world. We are barraged, as you all know, with messages of, of earthly things, of worldly things, the things that are real challenges for us, sometimes things that are fictitious challenges that are, you know, created in the space, and and we just have to cut through all that and be able to see that we, and, and remember that we are part of God's kingdom. And so today I want to talk about just who we are, who what our identity is, who we are as citizens of God's kingdom, um, knowing who you are and who you're not, and uh, what, our, what our role is here. So we're going to start in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And, uh, you know, First Peter, we studied that last year, and, and uh, what a great book, a book written, and it teaches us that as followers of Christ, we have a role to play in difficult times, and that by playing that role, we not only get the message of the gospel out, but we also uh, reassure ourselves in our own faith because of how God works through us. Uh, so no better time than now to uh, employ uh, our role as citizens of God's kingdom. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 9. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is such a great passage. We actually teach it as part of our first principle series to help us recognize that 
becoming a Christian is a definite demarcation in our life. We go from not having mercy to having mercy, from being in the darkness to being in the light. And, and that doesn't change as we go on as Christians. We are still in that demarcated life as part of God's people of light. And if you want to know what that means practically, you know, this is great quiet time stuff maybe for this week. Um, I won't get into it here, but the next few verses, verses 11 to 17, some really great practicals on how to live that out. He talks about abstaining from sinful desires. He talks about living remarkably good lives that will be visible and inspiring. He talks about submitting for God's sake to every human authority. He talks about using our freedoms and privileges for good and not to cover up our own uh, evil desires. Uh, and he talks about showing respect, loving the believers, fearing God, and honoring our, our authorities. Uh, that's a pretty good sermon right there. We could probably stop and we'd all have plenty to work on. But like I said, I don't want to just give you a list of things to work on. I want to talk about who we are and, and help our minds focus on our identity in Christ, what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And to do that, we're going to go back to the beginning of God's story with his people. And in fact, Peter is referencing a passage from Exodus uh, that God introduced uh, way back shortly after he pulled them out, pulled the Israelites out of Egypt. So let's go back to uh, Exodus chapter 19 and see this verse uh, originally uh, that God said uh, in speaking to Moses. And just remember, this is a time in Israel, Israel's history where uh, they don't really have a religion. They don't really have a set way to worship God or a lot of knowledge about God. Uh, you know, Abraham was called by God individually, and his family, after several generations wandering through Canaan, uh, entered Egypt as only, you know, 70 people, 70 men, plus wives and kids. Um, and, and so now they are 430 years in Egypt. They've multiplied to millions of people, but they haven't done it with a lot of information from God, at least nothing that we have recorded. Um, they, they, they didn't have a set worship. They didn't have uh, you know, this identity as, that they would later gain as, as the people of Israel, as Jews. Um, and so they're, they're fuzzy on this stuff. And so God is really making an introduction here in Exodus chapter 19. And we'll start in verse 4. He says, you yourselves, and, and here's God talking to Moses, actually. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, I will, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God actually offered these words to Moses and said, go back to the people of Israel. This is who I want to be to you. This is the God I want to be for you. This is how I want to lead you and call you out of Egypt. And he gave the Israelites a choice. He said, this is the deal. <laughs> Here's what I'm offering. And, go, and he told Moses, go back and tell the Israelites and see what they say. And fortunately, the Israelites said, yes, we want to follow. We will, we will be your people. We will obey. We will follow you. And so God took the next steps, and that's when he brought Moses up to the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, and he goes on to give uh, many other portions of the law. And we'll, we'll touch on a few of those things uh, in just a minute. And, and, you know, some of this information, uh, a lot of this information, I rely really heavily on uh, a guy named uh, Marty Solomon and his webcast, a uh, podcast called Bema, 
discipleship. And you've heard a little bit about that from, from other people. I just want to share with you that it's a really good resource. And if you are interested in the Old Testament and in hearing the Old Testament, perhaps the way that the original audience heard it, rather than from our Western, you know, modern lens, uh, really great insights into the scripture and encourage you to find that on the on the internet and, and download some of those. But want to give credit to, Mar- credit to Marty Solomon here because he's a great teacher in this and I've learned a lot from him this year studying that. All right, let's break this down, this passage down. He talks about, Peter talked about chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And so those would be our three points that we look at today. So first let's talk about being a chosen people. You know, part of what he says here in Exodus, God says, you will be my treasured possession. Um, that's wedding language. If you, if, uh, what, what we learn from, you know, ancient Mideastern weddings, that this is a phrase that's used by uh, husbands to talk about their wives on their wedding day. My treasured possession. And the idea of being treasured by anybody is so special to us. Um, you know, this marks the beginning. A wedding marks the beginning of a relationship. And it's full of adventure. It's full of uh, uncertainty. But it, there's also a sense of security that I have been paired with somebody. I have somebody to be my lifelong companion. And so when God says, I want you to be my treasured possession, he's trying to communicate how much he loves us, that we are, in fact, chosen people. You know, being rejected not being chosen, that's one of the hardest things we face still, as whether you're young or old, being rejected is hard. Not being chosen is, is damaging. In fact, there are studies that show that the pain that we feel from psychological rejection or social rejection is, is just as difficult to deal with as physical pain. All the same centers of our brain light up when we feel that kind of rejection. And so, Um, God steps in and he comforts us with this phrase, I want you, you are my chosen. Um, We are supposed to be God's treasured possession. And I don't know how you feel about being called a possession. Uh, It would bother me if it weren't God. (laughs) But it's God. And so God says, I want you and I'm happy to be his treasured possession. But You know, Ephesians 5 tells us that, uh, it says in verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, to be chosen by God, to be chosen, and the the wedding language here is that we are the bride of Christ as the church, that that we we are his beloved, his betrothed, and God calls us to this special relationship, and that has meaning for us. That means that we are to be holy and blameless and to keep ourselves from the world and pure and holy for God. Um, being Christ's bride is meant to be enough for us. It's meant to be the fulfillment of who he created us to be. Um, but sometimes that's hard to remember in our modern world. Being chosen also gives us tremendous internal strength. And I want you to think about how much strength you get from being chosen. Do you remember Dave Bruce a couple weeks ago talked about the definition of joy? He said it was the emotional response to being really special, to being loved by someone. Uh, Being chosen and knowing that we're chosen should bring us tremendous joy. You know, today's Valentine's Day. Uh, Brothers, you still have time. Um, But uh, go ahead and take care of that if you need to. Um, But, you know... 
Valentine's Day is a special time to express that I chose you. I choose you. I, I chose you, and I would do it all over again. Um, you know, if, if uh, you are having a hard time figuring out how to express that, here's an idea. Here's how they do it in Florida. My sister sent me this. Um, this may not work here, but uh, this is a package of bologna and a Bud Light and a sticker that says, Be My Valentine. So, I don't know. Try that. You might try something better. Uh, brothers, think about that. Maybe pray about that. You'll get some, you'll get some help there. But uh, anyway, Valentine's Day is not a way to express this very thing that God is telling us, that I choose you. I want you with me. Being chosen also gives us security. You know, knowing that we're chosen, knowing that we've gotten the job, knowing that we've been made part of the team, uh, brings us a tremendous amount of security. Romans 8, verse 31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us. You know, there's so much security in knowing that you know, God is literally on our side. He is behind us. He is supporting us. Um, it, it's helpful to know that. And, and not just us now, but for generations, God has been calling his people to be his chosen ones, to be with him. You know, uh, one of the shows that Corinne and I have uh, watched a lot during our uh, COVID uh, experience has been uh, Finding Your Roots by Dr. Henry, Henry Louis Gates Jr. And uh, a show about genealogy. And, and uh, if you're not familiar with the show, he interviews uh, fairly famous celebrities or other uh, professionals that are in the limelight. And and he talks to them about their, fam his, their own family's roots. And most of them don't know the story or they know very little. Um, and you can see these stories that come from uh, people immigrating to America and how just knowing who they were, knowing their roots, knowing where they came from provides so much security, especially because, you know, these are famous people that he's interviewing. These are successful people as the world would define it. And uh, they're so often recognized how they've been bolstered by the support of these immigrants who came sometimes with, you know, a dime in their pocket, really nothing at all, um, had to make a new life here. And just so incredible to think about the shoulders that we stand on spiritually and how much security we have when God says, I've chosen you, not alone, not singularly to be a Christian in America right now, but on the, on the shoulders of all these generations before you as I've been, as I've been playing out my narrative uh, in the world and what I hope to do. You are part of that, and you are part of the team, and that should bring us a tremendous amount of confidence and security in our lives that we've been chosen by God. Uh, being chosen also brings us purpose. Um, it's an invitation that God gives us to participate in something much greater than ourselves. John 15, verse 16 says, uh, Jesus talking, But you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You know, think about that. Jesus chose us for a purpose. He didn't just choose us because, oh, that's what gods do. They just forgive people and, and they're nice to them. No, he chose us for a purpose. He has mean, He gives meaning to our life. And so, by being chosen, we have joy, we have security, and we have purpose. These are the fundamental 
psychological things that we need in our life to feel strong, to feel invigorated, to be motivated, to, to you know, go beyond ourselves and to live for life, um, you know, outward focused life. All right, so the book of Exodus, it's been described uh, as kind of the wedding story of God introducing his people, courting his people, calling them into a relationship, betrothing them to himself. Um, such a great story uh, of partnership that God wants to call us into to live a life with him, to, to put the world back together. Basically, that's what he's been trying to do since Genesis, is to put the world back together, to reestablish to re, uh, reposition, reconnect us to him in a right relationship with him that we were designed to be in. And so to do that, what does he call his people to? He calls them to be a royal priesthood. And we'll look at the book of Leviticus, and I'll spare you, we're not going to read any of Leviticus. <laughs> I know that, you know, that's probably one of the scariest books in the Bible to really get into. Uh, but it's a fascinating book, and if you look at some of the materials from Bema and other scholarship, uh, the way that the book of Leviticus is broken down, it's really just a guidebook on how to be God's priest, what it means to be a priest for God in the world. And so I'm going to skip over the verses, but I'm going to glean a few things that, uh, that we can learn from the book of Leviticus about being a priest. First of all, the priests were to be special people. They were called, they were holy, they were sanctified, set apart. Uh, very different lives. In fact, some might say really strange lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about what the high priest wore, you know, this breastplate with gemstones on it and big heavy robes and hats and capes and, and they're in the middle of the desert. I mean, when you go, to, <laughs> if you're living in the desert, if you're wandering in the desert, is this something you want to be wearing? No, you don't. This, but this is God's calling them out to be special. They present themselves differently. And so Israelites are understanding by watching the priests that their calling is special because they, they need to present God as special, as different than all the gods around them that are talked about. And Israel learns as a people that that's also their role, as they imitate the Levitical priests, that their role is going to be to be a kind of a priesthood nation to the rest of the world. Look at some of the things that priests do. Priests put God on display. Priests figure out ways, or they're directed to do things to say, God is here, God is with us, God is pleased, God wants us to do this or that or the other thing. Um, you know, they're not concerned about how they look. They're concerned about presenting God, putting God on display. Another thing that priests do, priests help people navigate atonement. You know, we all have a sin problem. We all have this guilty conscience, this baggage of sin that we carry because we know, our consciences know, that we haven't lived up to what we've been called to. Even, even if you're not a Christian, you still understand that you have a sin problem, that you are broken somehow, and you are unable to fix yourself. And so the priests of the Old Testament were there to help people navigate with their sin issues, whether it was a sacrifice or an offering or some kind of a resolution meal with somebody to get reconciled. That was what the priests did. Of course, as Christians, we understand that very much, that we help introduce people to Jesus, to find faith through studying the scriptures, through being a good example, through serving them and loving them in a way that, that reflects positively on who God is. And so we help people navigate their atonement as priests. 
Priests intercede on behalf of others. And this is kind of interesting because as, as the priesthood, the, the Levitical priests would stand between God and the people and communicate to the people the things that God was trying to teach them. He would, he would take the, they would interpret the law, they would interpret the specific commands, they would help people understand these laws in the context of their lives. And that was part of their job. But it was also their job to stand before God on behalf of the people and to come to God and pray for the people and to beg God to intercede on God for his mercy and his generosity to be given to his people. And you, you think about, you know, uh, Abraham comes to mind when he's praying for Sodom. And, uh, you know, he starts his negotiation with God. You know, if only 50 righteous people are there, will you, will you still condemn the city? And, you know, in one of the boldest prayers in the Bible, he, he talks God down to just 10 people. You know, if there's only 10, will you save the city? And God says he will. And so you see Abraham interceding. That. And I, I think of Moses when he's on... Uh, the mountain after the Israelites, the whole golden calf issue. And God's, God's saying, I want to annihilate the people, and I'm going to start over again with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, blot me out, but save the people. You know, Moses is interceding as a priest. And that is our role. Sometimes as Christians, I think we feel like we're actually supposed to be the judge. We're supposed to determine what's right and what's wrong, who's right and who's wrong to condemn what we see, rather than to say, let's intercede for those people. If we see somebody blowing, if we see somebody caught in sin, if we see somebody doing damage, our role is to pray for them, to beg God for, their, for his mercy and generosity in their lives. I mean, Jesus, this is part of the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? If, if you see your enemy hungry, feed him. You know, he, he burning coals on his head, maybe, to get him to turn around, but, but our role is to intercede. And sometimes I feel like we take the position of we're supposed to be st- sitting back judging who's right and who's wrong rather than interceding for anybody that we think has missed the gospel, missed the truth about God's love for them. So um, a super important part of being a priest is learning to intercede for people rather than sitting back in judgment on people. And finally, the priests were to collect the offerings and distribute them to the people who had needs. You know, distributing resources to those in need was a huge part of the priesthood. Um, the offerings that came in, they weren't all eaten by the priests, they weren't just all burned up in smoke, but many of them were gathered to give to the people who didn't have enough. And so the people who, as it says, gathered much, didn't have too much, and people who gathered little didn't have too little. And so that's a huge part of uh, our being a priesthood in the world is that we are able to distribute resources, to encourage people to give resources and to redistribute them to people who are in need. Um, All great concepts from the book of Leviticus about what it means to be a priest. You know, the priests in general, their, their, their job was to reflect God's glory, his love, his unlimited mercy, and to facilitate reconciliation back to him. Um, so important for us to remember that in this world. Um, if we understand how the Levitical priests were called and what Israel came to understand about their role in the world, we better understand as Christians our role in the world to be, to be these missional citizens of God's kingdom as his priests. Okay, finally I want to talk about a holy nation. And again, let me go back to context. So the Israelite people 
430 years living under Pharaoh. Um, you know, the, we don't, I haven't studied a lot about the history of Egypt. Maybe some of you know more on this, but learned a lot from listening to Marty Solomon. Um, as I said, the Israelites, when they came to Egypt, they came for famine relief. They came for opportunity. They were blessed by God through his incredible working to have their own brother as essentially the prime minister of Egypt. And he invites them down, and if you remember, they were given the very best farmland in Egypt. They were, uh, they were uh, uh, the cherry spot in the whole country was given to them to, uh, to, to have their dwelling, to raise their family, to exist and thrive and grow. Um, they were blessed by Egypt. They, uh, God used that to bless them and to meet needs and to give them a better life. And, um, and yet somehow over that 400 years society, <laughs> uh, years of society, um, what the, the very country that they came to, to seek help and relief and opportunity for turned on them and crushed them uh, under slavery. Um, so they had, they had lived this entire life. It's hard for me to believe without a strong religious system of their own that they had adopted some of the thoughts and thought patterns of the, the Egyptian system, the, their theological system. And it's interesting, uh, Pharaoh's theological system. See, in Pharaoh's system, um, there was also defined this space between uh, you know the heaven and earth. We, we look at Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, and God separates the vaults, right? Or separates the waters, and there's a vault. And that's the space we live in. Um, and Egypt had a very similar uh, theological narrative that there, there's this separation of heaven and earth, a separation of this vault. But in the Egyptian system, it was Pharaoh's job as king and high priest to control this space. It was his job to make sure the gods were happy. Uh, and so he did that by having control, by being able to tax people to bring in, you know, harvest to make offerings or to arrange uh, great works like pyramids and things to appease the gods. Uh, he, he controlled the borders. He had ultimate authority because it was on him to control the space uh, where people lived. And that was their theological system. And that was the system that the Israelites had become ingrained in their heads. I, I can't imagine how it couldn't be. Uh, they didn't really have a strong system of their own. They may have had some oral histories of what, you know, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and all these guys, uh, who they answered to and how they met God, but I'm sure it wasn't strong. It was, it, you look at our own country, you know, before you became a Christian, was there a strong tradition of really honoring God in your life? No, although our, our country was founded on religious freedom and opportunity to worship God. And so it just gets lost. And it got lost, I'm sure, for the Egyptian or for the Israelites living in Egypt. Um, but controlling the space, the burden of controlling a space by a man is a heavy burden. And so Pharaoh used the tools at his disposal, you know, his strength, his might, his authority to control the space. Um, undoubtedly, we live in a country where people are working hard. They are flailing, they are scrambling to control the space. We've got all kinds of ideas about how to control the space 
in our country. Uh, that's what politics is. It's how to control the space, right? And our, our country is fractured over this right now. Um, we, we look at uh, how do we do this? What's supposed to happen? What's supposed to be right? But the problem is that we're focused, as Pharaoh was, as the Israelites undoubtedly wrestled with, we're focused on the wrong question. Because in God's theology, I'm sure God controls the space. But God says it's not about controlling the space. It's about filling the space. God says, I'm with you. I'm here. I will walk with you in this space. You know, it's funny. I, I've, I've listened a lot to you know, texts from our small group and friends at work. And, and you'll hear people struggling with this control, this insecurity, this if I'm not knowing of where is this country going, of what's going to happen with the pandemic, all those kinds of things. And, and the best that we come to, usually, what I hear is, well, at least God's in control. You know, we're so obsessed with control <laughs> that we even just, we finally assign it to God and just hope that He is. And yet God says, yeah, I'm in control, but it's not about me being in control. It's about me being with you and about you being with me. And I want us, and God invites the Israelites out of this city, this probably one of the most advanced cities in all of civilization at that time. Uh, you know, huge temples, huge public works, huge, you know, populations that were being fed and looked after. Um, to say, come with me, away from all that you know, all that is secure to you, even though you're slaves, come with me out into the desert. Let's go for a walk in the desert. Let's leave this place and go to something that's undeveloped and uncivilized. Let's go somewhere where you don't know where tomorrow's meal is coming from. And the Israelites, I mean, we, we read at times in their struggle in the desert where they, you know, challenge Moses and ask him, you know, why'd you bring us out here to just die in the desert? We had plenty to eat back home. You know, and you can see why they felt that way because even though they were enslaved, it was a system that was provided some type of security for them. And, you know, in our country, we get enslaved to the very country that we, you know, see as a, a chance for opportunity and prosperity, right? We may not call it Pharaoh, but we put other gods in place of Pharaoh to control the space. I mean, think about uh, some of the gods that come up uh, these days. Uh, prosperity, pleasure. Or maybe you're a law and order person, and that's kind of a god for you. Science, that's kind of chased away the myths of religion uh, in the past. Freedom, uh, simplicity. I'm a minimalist, just keep it simple. Uh, our health, our fitness, uh, sustainability in the environment, uh, justice, even love can become gods for us in a way that we hope these are the things that will control the space. And these are all great ideas. There's nothing wrong with these ideas, but they're not God. And so we've got to, we've got to resist putting those things in the space to control it and let God fill the space with himself and us walk along with him hand in hand in trust and in faith. You know, I learned a big lesson in 2020. I mean, there's so much happening that had to get your attention. I mean, if you didn't get your attention, you were chucked for a pulse, right? I mean, there was just a lot going on. But the big lesson for me was that I was just way too complacent about the world I lived in. 
You know, I was, I remember one day at work having a conversation with one of my coworkers about politics, and I was kind of flipping about, ah, whatever, you know, they're just rearranging deck tears on the Titanic, it's all going down. And he was, he challenged me, you know, he challenged me, said, that's typical for somebody like you to just not care. You're fine, you're okay, so you don't worry about it. And he challenged me, he really called me higher, and I thought, you know what, he's right. I've got to, and I had a good conversation with, this was kind of a heated conversation in the middle of the workday, so we went to lunch the next day and we, we worked it out, but he really taught me a lot about, you know, being more compassionate, being more engaged, being more understanding of not just what my life, how my life benefits from our country, but how other people maybe aren't getting the benefits that I'm getting from our country. And so I learned, I was way too complacent about that. Of course, the racial justice uh, issues, uh, narrative conversation that's been going on in our country really got my attention last year. And, and thankful to you know, Calvin, who's walked with me and coached me and helped me. I'm grateful to Dave and Mary, who called one day and said, hey, we're going out to, to do a protest, to stand in a protest. You want to come along? And we were like, yeah, we should go. This isn't right. So, you know, I went, I went to my first protest. I'm so proud of myself. But, but no, I, I, I make fun. But it's a big issue. But I, I was just too complacent. And I have to, I have to engage better. And, and maybe if you're like me, you do too. There, there's, there, there are things that we can do. There's a lot we can't do. But there are things that we can do. So anyway, those are my lessons. But, but you know, the lesson in all of this is that God is filling this space. And our call as a holy nation is not to try and be a nation like Pharaoh or, or, or the U.S. You know, our government is not the solution to filling the space in this country. Good government is always a blessing. And if you work in government, as I do, you know, you know it's not glamorous and there's, it's a lot of administrative stuff that has to happen to, to make our system run. Um, but it's not the solution to our country. Uh, the solution to our country is letting God fill the space and, and creating space in our own lives for God to fill, right? Um, sometimes that space gets crowded out and we've got to make more and more and more space in our lives for God's to fill. God asks us, he calls us to walk with him in what he calls a kingdom of shalom, a kingdom of peace, of completeness, of maturity, of finishedness, um, and not a kingdom of empire, um, which, is, which is the kingdom of Pharaoh. And so um, as you think about your relationship with the world that we live in, are you walking as a holy nation? Do you envision yourself as part of a nation of shalom, a nation where we walk with God, we trust God, we let God do what God's going to do, and we respond to the situations and the opportunities He puts in front of us with the knowledge of who we are and what our role is as a holy priesthood and a chosen people in our world. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous life. How are you doing with this? What difference does it make in your life, uh, your decisions, your demeanor, your drives, that you've been chosen by God? How are you doing as a priest? Are you helping others navigate atonement? Are you putting God on display? Are you interceding rather than judging on behalf of others? Are you facilitating hospitality and generosity as you can?
And how are you doing being part of his nation, the nation of shalom, the nation of peace, the nation that walks to the beat of a very different drummer than what we hear in our United States? Um, you know, we have come to this new king. As Christians, we've aligned ourselves with the new king, but the question is, are we acting like we live in the old kingdom? Amen? All right, we're going to move into a time of communion right now, and I want to share this thought with you. I spoke a little bit about some of the things I learned about Middle Eastern weddings, which is fascinating, and to see the parallels between uh, so much of the biblical language and uh, the wedding language that, um, you know, speaks to this highest of human relationships. Um, in Mark 14, this is uh, at the Last Supper, verse 24 and 25, Jesus said, he raised the cup, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Uh, he said to them, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You know, this is always an unusual um, statement to me. You know, what did that mean exactly? But it's interesting because it's all wedding language. See, in the, back in those days, uh, as most of history and most of humanity has experienced, marriages were arranged. I mean, call me silly, but to have grown adults who understand how to commit to a lifelong relationship help their kids make a decision rather than letting, you know, hormone-laden, late adolescent right. teenagers make a decision seems like a pretty good idea. So, <laughs> uh, of course, my daughter did well, so I'm happy, but I know others of you dads are amening me right here at the same time. Um, and I don't mean forced marriage. I don't mean horrible stuff, but I mean this was a pretty good idea. It was a pretty good system. Anyway, it worked for a long time. Anyway, send me an email on that. I'm sure you will. Um, but in this, in this narrative, in this arranged marriage situation, you know, the whole families were involved, and people would negotiate the dowry, and they're figuring out, you know, is this family the right family, and all that kind of stuff, and all that happens, and finally it culminates in a day when the groom's family goes on a little journey to visit the bride's family, wherever, wherever she is. And as they arrive, one of the things they do, one of the ceremonies they held, is the dad would pull a cup out of his pack, and he would give it to his son, and his son would fill it with wine or something, and uh, and offer it to the bride to be, to the to the betrothed to be. And what he would say, he would say, is this is a cup of a new covenant that I make with you today. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's house. And if she drinks, she accepts the proposal. And so the couple is now engaged, and of course, he goes away to prepare a place for her to join him in his father's house. He builds a room, um, and of course, there's all kinds of familiarity we have with that idea where Jesus is going away to prepare a room for us. What I'm trying to say is that our communion, this communion statement that, that Jesus made is, he is saying, I now am offering to marry you. You are to be my betrothed, and I'm going to go away to prepare a room for you, and I'm going to come back and take you to be with me where I am. But I want you to do this. I want you to celebrate this as often as you do it in remembrance of me so that you can remember that we have a special relationship, that you're, you're committed, you're off the market, you've been taken. You belong to me, and I belong to you. 
you know, as we take our communion today, I hope you'll remember how deeply loved you are by Jesus Christ, how much he wants to be with you, how he longs to reappear and unite us with him in a way that is unlike what we experience already. Uh, let's go to God in prayer as we thank him for the, the opportunity to remember that now. God, thanks so much for uh, speaking to us in such loving language. It's almost embarrassing how gushy you are to us sometimes, God, about how much you love us and treasure us and want us to be with you. And uh, it feels good to be wrapped up in that kind of love and to be uh, held tightly to you in that way. And Father, we're sorry when we forget that. and We're sorry when we let our our situation here in a temporal life uh, move our thinking away from how we've been called into something very special with you. Help us as we take the, the bread and the wine here, these, these elements that represent uh, Jesus' gift to us and his sacrifice to us, his dowry that he paid on our behalf. Uh, Father, help us to remember how special we are to you. Help us to Rise to the calling you've given us to be your treasured possession. Uh, we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.